It's time now for the Lamb Macrolane Legal Show. Each show, heard every other Thursday at 1230, will feature different lawyers and their guests from the law firm of Lamb Macrolane. And now today's show host, Dan Bush and Steve Jarman, criminal defense attorneys from the law firm of Lamb Macrolane, will be discussing the right to remain silent. My name is Dan Bush. I am a lawyer at the law firm of Lamb Macrolane right here in Westchester. And I am accompanied by one of my partners, Steve Jarman. Steve is also uh, an attorney at Lamb Macerlane. And today, we are going to talk about one of the topics that's near and dear to our hearts. Because what we are is we are criminal defense attorneys. We're lawyers. And everybody always says, what does a criminal defense attorney do? Well, in general, exactly what you would think that we do. We defend people who get charged with crimes. But one of the other things that we do is we counsel people on the law. And it's kind of no different than you would think of as a doctor. Everybody thinks of doctors treat sick people, right? Well, not always. Sometimes doctors do more than that. They talk to people who are well in in the hopes that they don't get sick. Well, we're going to do the same thing today. Uh, And with that in mind, uh, I'll give you a little bit of introduction on myself. And Steve's background is... A little bit more interesting than mine, I think. But nonetheless, I have, I'll give you who I am, what I do. I spent four years in the Chester County District Attorney's Office a long, long, long time ago. And now have been at Lamb Macerlane ever since, doing exactly what we're here to talk about today, practicing criminal defense work. Um, and right now I chair our criminal litigation department. And I'll talk to you about that a little bit later, about what I think is really cool about our department and unique about our department. And Steve is a phenomenal addition, the most recent addition to our department. Um, And I think that makes us probably the best criminal defense attorneys as a group that you'll find in Chester County. But that's I'm not here to just promote us as a law firm or us as lawyers. Hopefully I'm here to do some other things. So with that in mind, um, here's Steve. Tell us about yourself, Steve. Well, Dan, I appreciate that introduction. Uh, First of all, I want to apologize for my voice. I'm uh, trying to get over a cold at the moment. If the good news is, if you don't like this voice, uh, I probably won't have this voice for much longer. Bad news is, if you think this voice is cool, I won't have this voice for much longer. So um, I'm going to do my best to to work through and try to provide uh, the audience with um, some 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 information, um, and try to have a little fun along the way. Uh, my background is uh, not too much dissimilar from Dan's. Uh, I actually my first job was in the same district attorney's office that Dan started in. Um, a few years later than Dan, um, I'm not as experienced as uh, Dan is. Not as old as I am either. <laughs> but we both are bald, so uh, I would say mine is my choice. But uh, nonetheless, I started in that same DA's office. And I was there for about two and a half to three and a half years. Um, and then um, I moved into criminal defense. Um, I did criminal defense for uh, pretty much since I left the district attorney's office and uh, worked for various other entities, worked for myself and my own firm for a while. Um, and then I uh, joined Lamb Macerlane, um recently, um, where I now work with Dan. I'm happy to be there. Um, like I said, my main practice has been criminal defense. I've represented um, many cases over the year, ranging from simple cases like underage drinking all the way up to uh, murder cases. 
So it's a little bit of information about me. I look forward to uh, 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 giving you more information along the way. And I think the, the the thing that makes that kind of background the same as my background, uh, the thing that makes it unique and, quite frankly, beneficial to the people that we end up uh, working with is that we've seen it from both sides. So we deal with prosecutors on a daily basis. We deal with judges on a daily basis. And what we can bring to the table is the fact that, you know, the old adage, know thy enemy. Well, I'm not going to say that prosecutors are our enemies but um it's good to know where they come from and now we see it from a different side but the fact is that we're all playing the kind of the same game we just now know both sides of the equation so with that in mind hopefully some of the things that we're going to talk about are going to be pretty well informed and maybe even have an interesting story or two today's topic is the right to remain silent everybody's heard about it Anything you say can and will be used against you in the court of law, right? Well, that right to remain silent, the first part of that little story, is extraordinarily important in what we do. Because, like the old adage goes, that once you ring a bell, you can't unring that bell. Which means once, for the most part at least speaking, once you say something you're not going to be able to take it back. So it's extraordinarily important not only to know what your rights are, but to know when to exercise those rights. And with that in mind, when Steve and I were doing this planning, one of the things that popped in my mind is where does this right to remain silent come from? And at the risk of going off on a history tangent here, the right to remain silent is an absolute fundamental right that's, that's based in our Constitution. So any time you have constitutional rights, they're the most important rights we have. It's not like we created them, that a bunch of people voted on them um, sitting in Harrisburg or sitting in Washington, D.C. No, these are made by the founders of our country. So the law looks at them as they're the most important rights out there, and everything kind of flows from those. With the right to remain silent with our country, like I said, it's built into the Constitution. It's built into the Bill of Rights of the Constitution, specifically the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution. And that comes there and it says, look, at no point do you ever have to be compelled in any type of criminal case to be a witness against yourself. It doesn't mean you don't have to get on the stand and talk about it. It means you never have to give evidence against yourself. And that started way, way, way back when, when our founders or the founding fathers were back in England. Uh, they brought those concepts here to America and the unique part about the difference, I guess, in our two systems, at least back then, was back in the day, back in England, their system basically said criminal trials were all about searches for truth and giving a defendant, a person charged with a crime, an opportunity to talk. In other words, they didn't want to just arrest people and throw them into jail and not hear their story. So trials back then were, go ahead, tell your side of the story, and people were basically made to speak. Our system in, in the United States is now the exact opposite. You don't ever have to speak. Steve's going to talk about it later on. Who has the burden of proof in every criminal case, Steve? Yeah, so uh, one of the reasons why it's important is that um, in our system, 
we're not we don't have a system where both sides give their story and a, a jury decides which is the truth. Um, the burden is always placed on the, the Commonwealth or the state, depending on where you live. You know, we live in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Other places call it the state or you know, sometimes you may have heard people reference the people versus individual. Uh, so we, we're in the Commonwealth. So anytime you hear us speak about the Commonwealth, it's basically the prosecution bringing the case. They always have the burden to prove the charges. So the the right to remain silent goes hand in hand with that burden. Um, because in a situation where a defendant, someone charged, would have to try to prove their innocence, it would be hard to do that if they didn't speak. And you can think of a situation where they're accused of something and they're asking for a response, tell us your story, and they don't say anything. How can they prove that they're innocent? Well, fortunately for us, fortunately for you know, our society, we don't live in a system where we, we the person charged, or the defense attorney representing, representing them, have to prove anything. We literally could sit there the entire trial, let the state, the commonwealth, the prosecution put on their evidence, and simply stand up at the end of that trial and say they did not meet their burden. Um, that's all that's required, um, you know, of a defense attorney or a defendant is just to be present. Um, now, sometimes it may be advantageous for someone to tell their story. Um, sometimes the only way to uh, raise reasonable doubt, which is the standard that the Commonwealth must uh, meet to prove someone guilty, sometimes the only way to do that is for your client or the defendant to take the stand and give their side of the of the story. But they don't have to. And so the right to remain silent, again, goes hand in hand with the burden of proof. No one is forced to testify or say anything, and uh, that goes hand in hand with the Commonwealth being forced to be able to put their case on and say, this is what happened. Now the jury has to decide, was that enough evidence? Now, Steve, you're a trial attorney like I am, uh, which means we have cases that go to trial in front of judges, in front of juries all the time. Give me some of the strategic reasons why you would advise your client to not take the stand. And we'll talk about later on exactly this right to remain silent when it starts in the whole process. But let's kind of fast forward to the trial. You have a trial. You have 12 people. Let's say it's in front of a jury. You have 12 people that are sitting there. They don't know anything about the case. The judge tells them a little bit. Do you ever get the sense that, hey, they want to hear your client talk? This guy's charged with a crime, and i got to hear from him and hear his side of it. Yes, that's a uh, that's that's a situation that really puts a lot of stress in the decision making on an attorney, doesn't it? <laughs> you're, you're, you're trying to kind of weigh a lot of this comes in the moment. You know, you're looking at the jury and trying to make eye contact and reading their facial expressions as evidence is introduced and thinking, oh, is this you know taking hold? Like, is, does this mean any anything to them? And but for strategically. Uh, there, there's various reasons why you may not want your client to testify. The, the number one reason I can think of um, is that, you know, we interview our clients and maybe our client will tell us the truth. Uh, maybe they say our, that they did the crime that they're char charged with. As attorneys, we can't put on uh, perjured testimony. If we know something to be false, we can't present that testimony. So, but that doesn't prevent us from defending that case and arguing that the Commonwealth hasn't met their burden. So if a client has told us, yes, I did that crime, well, clearly 
we wouldn't want to put them on the stand because we would be in a position where they would be compelled to tell the truth or else, you know, we could be subject to we, the attorney, could be subject to discipline for putting on false testimony. So in that situation, we would say, look, we, we you can't take the stand. Um, if you did, you'd have to tell the truth and the truth would incriminate you. Um, there could be other reasons, uh, just more innocent reasons. Uh, maybe your client, uh, you believe your client is innocent, didn't do anything wrong, but they they're just not a good public speaker. Um, if you've ever had to take the witness stand, it's one thing to think about it as a concept, but to be on that stand and have somebody asking you questions and to be asked questions while something's on the line. Uh, most people, uh, their highest fear is, you know, public speaking. But imagine, but in that context, you're talking about, you know, giving a presentation at a school or standing up in front of an audience. Imagine giving that presentation when something's on the line, your freedom's on the line. You could go to jail for, you know, what you say here. Uh, that's a lot of pressure. And sometimes we can look at a client and assess their situation and say, you know what, the way you respond to the question, I doesn't mean that you're guilty, but I can see that a jury may think that your nervousness means that you're guilty. And so that could be a reason why we may not want to call a client. I'll give you an even more practical reason. And unfortunately, this is the reality and what we deal with. A lot of times we deal with people who just flat out aren't likable people. And <laughs> you sit in the, in, we have a very nice conference room at Lamb Lane, and I've sat in that conference room and I hear my client talking to me and I say, there's no way in the world 12 people are going to listen to your story and like you and believe you. And that's a strategic decision. I'm, I mean, it, it sounds funny and all, but that's part of what we do. And that goes back to the constitutional right. And what you were talking about is it's not our burden to disprove the case. It's their burden to prove the case. And if any of the prosecutors out there are listening, uh, you... you the ones that I've tried cases about, you'll know that one of the things I've always said in my opening is, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, we don't have any burden to prove anything. We can sit here and kind of kick our feet up on the table, although we'd never do that because the judge would yell at us. But we could sit here and say, I don't have to answer any questions. I don't have to ask any questions. I don't have to do a darn thing. And they still have to prove their case. And if they can't do it, then the fact is that they haven't met their burden, and that means that the verdict has to be not guilty. Um, so sometimes I sit there and say the best way to defend this case, as you were just saying, is to not have my client get on the stand and talk about it, whether he's guilty or whether he's innocent. And a lot of times that's difficult because the client says, no, 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 I didn't do this. I want to get up there and talk. And sometimes you really have to go with that because there are certain cases that juries sit there and go, I have to hear it from him. And if your guy's not going to talk, then there's just no way that I can figure out to possibly find him not guilty. So, I mean, it's a strategy call, right? Absolutely. Um, and if you think about it, you know, it goes against, you know, it's the instinct. You know, it goes against human nature to not want to defend yourself. Uh, you and I were talking earlier today about, you know, if I came into your office and then you were eating lunch and you left the office, you came back and your lunch was gone, and then you came to me and said, Steve, did you take my oh, lunch? I, I, I would know the answer <laughs> to that one, right? <laughs> you know, if you came to me and said, Steve, 
did you eat my lunch? What did you do? And I just looked at you and refused to say anything. That would be extremely awkward. No one one would do that in real life. No one would just refuse to answer a question from their friend. You would at least, even if you, you would at least lie, right? You would at least make up something. There would be some response. So it goes against like our habit as humans not to respond to certain situations. So, uh, you know, Dan and I aren't saying that even though it's a right, we're not saying it's easy to exercise that right. We understand that there's pressure, uh, human nature pressure to want to respond. But sometimes not responding um, is the is the only way to succeed in, in a criminal case. So let's take a step back. We talked about the trial, and uh, trial is obviously the end of the case. A lot of times there's a lot of time and effort and everything else that goes along with it that go into trials. But let's start at the beginning of the case. Your client gets arrested, and he hasn't even called you yet because this was something that happened relatively quickly or even a delayed response or whatever. And the police take him into their interrogation room, and they start asking your client questions. And more than likely, they're going to tell him that he doesn't have to talk to him. And that's a case called Miranda versus Arizona. Uh, and we'll talk about that in a couple of seconds. But let's say that they get into that room and you have one police officer or two police officers in, in a closed little room and they start asking your client, well, tell me what happened, Joe. Tell me what happened, Steve. If you were the attorney at that point, and let's say that you can get to your client before the police actually engage in that conversation, what would you say to them and why? So if I could get to him before that began, I would I, I would do everything I could to shut that down. Um, most of the time, uh, and, and this you can chime in if this is your practice too. What I've observed is that when law enforcement is questioning a client, it's because they believe that they they did something. It's because they believe that they're guilty, and there's really not a it's, it's not a a 50-50 proposition where we're we're just trying to figure out things here. They have a belief, and trying to overcome a belief is hard. And so if they think that the person did something, they're looking for something to confirm that belief. So if they're asking questions, even if you didn't do anything, even if the client is completely innocent, the police are never going to ask the question. Well, they might, but they're really not going to try to ask the money ball question, which is, did you commit this crime? Um they're going to ask questions around that crime. So where as the person may think, well, I'm not I'm not I'm not saying I did anything wrong. You know, they ask, were you at McDonald's on November 5th in Westchester? Uh, that's a simple question. That doesn't say I'm, make me guilty of a crime. I'm going to answer yes. Now you're locked into that. But then what if you find out later that, oh, a crime, somebody identified you as being involved in a crime at a McDonald's on November 5th. So that little harmless statement that you thought as a defendant or as a person wasn't a big deal, now it's a big deal, right? It's a big deal. Now you're locked in. Now you can, now as more information is revealed in the case, you're kind of stuck to that now. Um, whereas if you just exercise the right to remain silent from the get-go, I, I want to speak to an attorney. They don't have that. But sometimes that little thing could be the only thing that they need to prove the entire case. And I say this at the risk of offending my brothers and sisters in law enforcement. And look, Steve and I have 
a lot of friends who are police officers, and we respect what they do. And I will tell you that absolutely 99.9% of them respect what we do as well. It doesn't have to be necessarily a enemies as we described earlier this this is a process and i believe that the process works they do their job we do our job and we'll see where we come out from there but i will tell you that the police officers more than likely are not your friends when you get into that room more than likely those police officers are not looking for you to talk yourself out of trouble they're only looking for you to talk yourself into trouble And more than likely, you're not going to talk yourself out of trouble. You are only going to talk yourself into trouble. So at the very beginning of any case, it's what I call exercising your your right to shut the heck up. (laughs) And do it. And look, it is a God, not a God-given right. It is a constitutional right. It is there. And we talked about this before. Too many people will sit there and go, well, the police officer is going to think badly of me if I don't answer his questions. He's going to think I'm guilty. What do you say to that, Steve? I say it's better to look guilty than be found guilty. And who cares, right? Who cares what he thinks? He thinks you're guilty anyway. He or she thinks you're guilty anyway. That's why you're there. One point to offer on that, too, and why this is significant. The right to remain silent is so significant and so sacrosanct that... It's not allowed to be mentioned to the jury. So, for instance, the police officer asked the question, sir, were you involved? I'm sorry, I'm exercising my right to remain silent. In a trial, the prosecutor would not be allowed to bring that up to the jury. to you know, Because obviously if the jury heard that, oh, they asked him questions, he exercised his right to remain silent. He must be guilty. Juries never told that because they don't want to prejudice a jury and make them think that, oh, they, uh, that exercising your right to remain silent is a bad thing. So our prosecutors barred from making a, a deal about that. They're not allowed to say, they asked Mr. Jarman these questions, and he exercised his right to remain silent. Not allowed to do it. So when you exercise your right to remain silent, you are protecting yourself. And the only person you may look guilty in front of is the police officer. But it's better to look guilty in that setting to the police officer without any evidence against you than to say something incriminating and then be found guilty in front of a jury. Steve, let's talk real quick about the that case, uh, that Miranda case. Miranda came out, I think it was actually 1966, and no, I was not alive in 1966. <laughs> but 1966, the U.S. Supreme Court case, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court comes out and says, hey, everybody has a right to remain silent. But that right is really an empty right if a person's not informed of that right prior to making any statement. So without going through the nuts and bolts of that case, what they essentially said is if two things are going on, if a person is in custody and if they are being interrogated, then there needs to be some type of what we know as Miranda warnings, not some type of, it's very specific what you have to say. There needs to be Miranda warnings given before any statement can be taken into evidence. And that is the one that you've always heard about on TV that says you have a right to remain silent and any anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. And all that is is making sure that before you say anything that incriminates you, that you know what you're about to do. And now going back to that police interrogation setting... 
I will promise you that the officer will tell you that in a very nondescript way. And sometimes they make you sign cards and sometimes they don't make you sign cards. But you still have that kind of awkward setting that you and I were just talking about. At the end of it, the police officer is still going to ask you the questions if you don't flat out come out and say, I, I invoke my right to be, remain silent and I, or I want an attorney or something like that. And now you have those questions posed to you, right? Right. And you're going to sit there and feel awkward when he asks you. And it's going to take a strong presence inside of you to say, hey, I don't want to answer your questions. Um, and quite frankly, that ends up tying most of those interviews end up in something that's going to tie our hands somewhere down the line, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. The many cases that I've... The most powerful evidence in, in a jury trial is video or audio. If... A jury can hear, see someone on video doing the crime. That's one thing. If they can hear someone talking about the crime, that's a, another thing as well. And it's, it's very hard. It's very hard to overcome hearing that, um, hearing uh, a defendant or a client, you know, saying something that could be incriminating and then trying to deal with it at that point. It's very hard to overcome. And what Miranda protects. And what everybody has a right to do is not only re to remain silent. Everybody has the right not to talk. That's what we've talked about for the last 20 minutes. What they also have the right to do is to voluntarily waive their right to remain silent. And, Steve, I don't know about you, but a significant amount of my practice where a person does give a statement to the police is spent trying to figure out whether and then ultimately convince a court whether that waiver, in other words, the decision to talk, was voluntarily made. And I'll give you a very quick example. I had a client who was accused of a very, very serious crime, most serious crime we have under the law. And at the time, about eight hours after the incident occurred, he ended up giving a, a lengthy statement to the police. And what he had been doing was drinking for the eight and a half hours, eight hours, since committing that crime. It was, this was a homicide case. And the after the, out, the alleged incident occurred, he drank for eight hours straight. And then the police ended up interviewing him. And this was videotaped and audiotaped. And if you've ever seen an intoxicated person, this guy looked as intoxicated sitting in the back of a police car as you could possibly... Imagine, and the question became, okay, yeah, he, they read him his Miranda rights, and he waived those Miranda rights, but he was literally falling into the police officer at the time that he did it, and he was slurring his speech, and he was very th drawn out because he was extraordinarily intoxicated, and his blood alcohol was probably a 2.5 or a 2.6, which is three times what the legal driving limit is, and the question became for the court in what amounted to a three-hour, or I'm sorry, a three-day suppression case, whether that confession was voluntarily entered into. In other words, did he voluntarily waive his right to remain silent? Uh, and that's kind of the essence of what we're talking about here today. Yeah, you have that right, but what the law has said eventually is that that has to be a voluntary decision, and it has to be an informed decision. I Meaning, there's we talked about it before, juvenile cases, right? Yep. Yeah, because with juvenile cases, you have, obviously you have people who, 
I mean, they're young, so they have they don't have much experience with life, let alone experience with the law. So um, if a police officer were to question the juvenile without a parent, that's something where a court would say, look, um, that's not a voluntary statement because of their mindset, because they're, they're, they, have, they don't have a mature mind. They need a parent to be able to advise them. That statement that you took from that child, that's not going to come in. That's going to be thrown out because... Even though they told you, yes, I'll talk, they may have waived their right to um, remain silent. The courts have said they're not mature enough to waive that right. They're not mature enough to give that consent. A parent must be present. Yeah, it's a neat area of the law, too, and it's, a, it's one that I had a very um, recent case with. Well, Steve, amazingly, so this, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, this is the first time that Steve and I have done this together, and uh, I think we got a little bit off track and we had a time period of about a half an hour, and it's amazing to me, at least, that we've used pretty much all of that at this point. Steve, it has been extremely enjoyable sitting down. Steve's relatively new to our firm, so we don't get to sit down and do this kind of stuff all that often, but uh, I enjoyed it. I did, and, too. And hopefully we're coming back at some point in the near future and either probably going to a different topic. You can only talk yeah. so much about this stuff, but uh, hopefully we can bring some more information to the ladies and gentlemen out there. And I would be 100% remiss and, pro and probably fired by my law firm <laughs> if I, I didn't do the lawyer thing here. And the lawyer thing is saying that this is just the things that we've been doing for the last 29 minutes and 15 seconds is purely for general legal information. In fact, a lot of it has to do with our opinions, Steve and my opinions. And this isn't sp supposed to be uh, intended to constitute any specific legal advice. Um, and it's really just for informational and perhaps even amusement purposes. Uh, if you have a legal issue, you should contact an attorney and hopefully one that knows uh, what they're talking about in that specific area of the law. And if it is, in fact, a criminal case and you do have issues or questions about that, Steve and I are at Lamb Mackerlane right here on Market Street in Westchester. Our general number is 610-430-8000. That's 610-430-8000. Again, my name is Dan Bush. He is Steve Jarman. And... I think I'm speaking for the both of us is that we've enjoyed your time and I hope you've enjoyed ours as well. Look, if you can take away one thing out of this whole thing, remember what I said. You're not going to talk yourself out of trouble. You are only going to talk yourself into it. So they gave you the right to shut the heck up. So please exercise it. Steve, you got anything? I think you covered it all, buddy. All right, man. Take care. Thank you. You've been listening to the Lamb Mackerlane Legal Show, heard every other Thursday at 1230 on WCHE 1520, the talk of Chester County.